I'm Gabriel Shipton, I'm Julian Assange's brother. The national security state just doesn't want its secrets exposed and they're using the Espionage Act to clamp down on publishers. They're afraid of leaks, they're afraid of being surveilled. Julian turned the lens of surveillance around back onto them. They want Julian dead. There's a worldwide movement of people who see this case for what it is. It's a criminalization of telling the truth, a criminalization of journalism. He's my hero basically, but he's also my brother. I had these visions of hackers in prison for fighting the system on couching of fiction. Which of you listen? Which of you listen? Which of you listen? Gabriel Shipton, thank you so much for chatting with me about the Assange case. Thanks. It's uh, good to be here. You have been deeply involved with this case and all of the inner workings. You've been meeting with Assange while he was at the Ecuadorian embassy. Let's dive into what he was originally persecuted for, all of the impact that he's had in holding governments accountable, and uh, what's happening now with him and the US extradition request. In terms of the case, Julian's charged uh, with 17 counts under the 1917 uh, Espionage Act. Julian is the first publisher and journalist to be charged under the Espionage Act. It's a very sort of dangerous precedent uh, in that sense for uh, freedom of the press and freedom of communication. He's been silenced and been put in prison. I think it was a thousand days last week that he's been in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison just outside of London. He's currently in the in the in the UK, and uh, the US is re- requesting uh, or you know uh, fighting to extradite him. The beginning of Julian's persecution was after the release of the Chelsea Manning leaks. So that's the Guantanamo Bay detainee files, the Afghan war diaries, the Iraq war logs, and the cable gate, the large set of cable releases. So that was back in 2010. And it was shortly after that, an international arrest warrant was brought for his arrest by Sweden. And then he was under house arrest for a couple of years. And then he went into the Ecuadorian embassy where he spent seven years uh, and Um, a couple of years ago was taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy and is now in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison. He has not uh, enjoyed, uh, you know, a day, basically a day of freedom uh, since the release of those documents uh, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, that's right. That's shocking. These reports that WikiLeaks and these major newspaper outlets published, they published the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs, US diplomatic cables. What did that entail? What kind of information was released? The Afghanistan War Diaries was an archive of military reports that showed exactly how war in Afghanistan was being waged, civilian body counts, all these sorts of things that the public really wasn't aware of. And the same in Iraq, it exposed war crimes that were happening, civilian deaths, how the war was actually being waged, but wasn't being reported on. So the public actually didn't know about these, you know, I think it's 40 or 50,000 civilian deaths that happened in Iraq. But WikiLeaks exposed those and exposed these sort of war crimes to the public. And so that the public was able to then see how these wars are being waged. You can see with the Afghanistan war, that war is over now. So it takes time for these leaks to seep in. But eventually the public says, why are we fighting this war? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it's from these leaks that, 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 understanding, that understanding grew. In the diplomatic cables, there was a cable that was leaked that spoke about a massacre of civilians by a US military unit. They killed an entire family, children, grandparents, you know, father, mother, and then they ordered a airstrike in to cover up the murders. And so this was revealed in a WikiLeaks cable. The Iraqi government then uh, was able to respond to that cable, uh, respond to that leak by not renewing the status of forces 
agreement in 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 Iraq. So, um, you know, based on that on that cable, they said, well, we're not going to give the U.S. military uh, immunity from prosecution uh, because this is this is how you behave. And so that led to the Obama administration having to reduce the troop numbers directly in Iraq. So it's, uh, you know, and that's just one cable that led to that, you know, basically troops being withdrawn from from Iraq. So that's the impact that that um, the impact that these um, cables and and documents have had, um, you know, they exposed uh, corruption and, and, and war crimes and uh, things that governments want to keep hidden from the public. You know, they want to act with impunity. Um, they want to be able to, uh, you know, rule and wield power in the darkness. Um, but because once we find out, once the public finds out, um, you know, they don't like like what they see and then, you know, they will vote them out, uh, you know, potentially. Mm -hmm. And how do you think the government felt when all of this stuff was released? Uh, were they embarrassed? Were they angry? Were they all of the above? I think they were scared. I think they were scared and afraid. I think, I think, um, you know, Julian turned the lens of surveillance around back onto them. And so they had to think twice. They, you know, when, when they ordered these things to happen or when they developed military when policy or say policy in Guantanamo Bay, these torture, you know, torture regimes in Guantanamo, the governments became scared. They thought, oh, oh shit, are we going to are we going to be prosecuted? You know, these, we're, we're committing crimes and we've been exposed. And so that's why I think you've seen such a, uh, such a huge reaction is because they're, they're actually afraid of this technology that's been developed. Um, they're afraid of leaks. Um, they're afraid of being surveilled. Um, you know, they're, they're afraid of, of um, having their crimes exposed. Uh, so I, that's, that's what I, I think fear motivates a lot of what's happening to Julian, this persecution, because they're afraid of, of you know, afraid of us, basically, <laughs> afraid of um, us knowing what, what's been done in our names. Talk to me a little bit about the context of WikiLeaks around here, uh, the importance of this occasion and, and them posting these documents. They were actually nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for promoting world peace by holding governments accountable for their actions. Well, I think it was the first time, uh, you know, I think Julian developed WikiLeaks as this way of, you know, what he saw as a problem in our system that since the Iraq war, since that sort of weapons of mass destruction, that big lie, there was a problem within legacy media that they were being used to convince the public these government actions and these wars were okay. So Julian came up with WikiLeaks basically, which was, you know, to uh, attract, attract leaks and, and sort of keep uh, keep the media honest in a way. So, um, you know, he partnered with all these media organizations who, uh, you know, would usually endorse these wars or, or publish, you know, these big mass destruction from the Iraq war. But they were able to be kept honest because they knew in the back of their mind that, uh, you know, these documents would be published on, on WikiLeaks. And so they couldn't just... Uh, uh, publish whatever they wanted. Um, you know, they couldn't just pick and choose excerpts that would suit their suit their narratives. Um, that they would have to report on them, uh, you know, truthfully, honestly, and 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 report what was in the public's interest. These huge uh, leaks were, uh, you know, the first of their kind. These first sort of large data, uh, large data leaks that we're seeing more and more of now. Edward Snowden was another one. Panama Papers, things like that. 
but these Chelsea Manning leaks, the Iraq war logs, the Afghanistan war diaries, uh, Guantanamo Bay detainees files, and the um, cable set uh, were the first were the first of their kind, and the first instance of this sort of uh, crowdsourcing or open source journalism, where uh, all these organisations would come together uh, to report uh, together on these on these leaks, and so I guess you know we've seen that now. Uh, with the Panama Papers, things like that, uh, these associations of, of, of legacy media coming together, uh, copying this, um, this uh, you know, crowdsourcing of uh, journalistic activity. You're Assange's brother, and when WikiLeaks first came out with these revelations and first positioned themselves as this accountability department, holding governments accountable and exposing corruption. How did you feel? Like, were you proud of your brother? What What was going through your head at that time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was immense. I've always been very, you know, always looked up to Julian. He's my older brother. I uh, never thought I'd be in this position, um, you know, where I'd be, you know, you know, advocating for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always looked up to Julian, uh, you know, where no, no, no matter what he was doing, whether it was WikiLeaks or whether it was earlier iterations like rubber hose cryptography or the other work that he's done. Yeah. I mean, immensely proud, immensely proud of Julian and the work, uh, that he's done. And also, you know, he, he's like, he's my hero basically, you know, I think that's, that sums it up, but he's also my brother. So, um, yeah, always, you know, I'd, I'd, yeah, immensely proud and, and just look up to him and his strength and, and, and what he's been through and being able to survive, I think is just, uh, is just amazing. Absolutely. And there's a misconception around WikiLeaks. I remember reading in Glenn Greenwald's book, No Place to Hide, and I think Snowden's talked about it as well. A lot of people see WikiLeaks as, oh, well, it's just this giant document dump. There was no redaction. It put all these people in danger. Uh, that's actually not true. Uh, and I didn't know that until I read what Glenn Greenwell had to say about this. Um, I believe like, and walk, tell me if I'm correct in my understanding of this, but WikiLeaks uh, approached the government and said, can you help us redact these? We don't want to put anyone in danger. Um, but, you know, these files have been hacked. They're out there. They are going to be released unless, you know, we can put out a version first. And the government refused to help. Is that a, a correct understanding of those early days of the first WikiLeaks uh, document dumps? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, the that, that's that's correct. So uh, Wiki, you know, the, these Chelsea Manning leaks, WikiLeaks worked very hard to uh, redact. They created, um, you know, they created programs to help redact this vast uh, trove of documents because uh, it just, you know, with the resources that uh, these media organisations had, it was just not possible. So you know, Julian worked very hard to, Julian and WikiLeaks worked very hard to redact these documents. This is a sort of misconception and it's propagated against Julian to make it seem that he's reckless or he's done something wrong, but it's just not the truth. I think you're talking about there's a great phone call from that Laura Poitras filmed for her movie Risk, where Julian's actually calls the State Department and tells them that, you know, these files are out there, uh, and the password was published by uh, two Guardian journalists in their book, uh, David Lee and um, I forget the other one, but the password to this encrypted file was published in their book. And so mm -hmm. once Julian realised this, 
uh, he rang the State Department and said, look, you know, like where we want to work with you to help you uh, to stop to stop these documents from going out. And who would be releasing these cables? Is this WikiLeaks? No, we would not be releasing them. We are doing our usual thing of continuing on with, um, um, with, with our redaction plan. But the State Department, you know, refused to engage, and that was under Hillary Clinton. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of evidence out there, you know, how Julian, uh, you know, redacted these documents and, and worked hard to stop um, these sort of, this sort of mass uh, unredacted release um, that he's often accused of. Let's talk about the aftermath of uh, of this publishing, because the governments didn't just say, oh, yay, we're being held accountable. This is fantastic. Thank you, you know, for the state. They were crazy angry. First of all, there was a criminal investigation into WikiLeaks. There was an arrest warrant for um, Assange from Sweden. All of this seems to be a pretext for him to be extradited from Sweden to the United States. So walk me through those early days and that kind of fallout after these documents were released, because the government had egg on its face. They were not happy about this. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, after these documents released in 2010, um, there was this reaction from the US government. There was an extra legal banking blockade that was made against WikiLeaks. They cut off their donations from PayPal. They cut mm. off their credit card, MasterCard. They closed Julian's personal accounts. Um, they basically, uh, you know, did this totally illegal banking blockade uh, against WikiLeaks. Um, that was one of the first, first actions that they took which interesting led WikiLeaks to adopt Bitcoin as their operational currency, right? Which was the first example of Bitcoin being uncensorable. Uh, yeah, that, and that was actually one of the first big bull runs in Bitcoin as well. And it's always held up as this example of this is why we need money that's not controlled by a government. When you have it controlled by a government, they can pressure the intermediaries. They can stop MasterCard and PayPal and all of these payment providers from processing payments to WikiLeaks. And it really goes down in history as being this example of, you know, how do we reclaim freedom there? And another interesting note I read years ago, WikiLeaks saying, you know, thank you government for shutting that down because we've had all of our donations in Bitcoin and that's gone up, but, you know, so much in price that we ended yeah, up, right. you know, getting a lot of money. So that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, yeah, no, that was great. And, and uh, you know, they, they used Bitcoin, you know, as their operating currency over the years. So, you know, they were paying people in Bitcoin. They were, you know, going to conferences and buying tickets in Bitcoin. They were paying for servers in Bitcoin. They, they were just, you know, uh, you know, these leaders in the, in the Bitcoin space, you know, using Bitcoin because they had to, right? Like they, mm -hmm. it wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, you know, Bitcoin just was able to give them that opportunity to, um, you know, keep operating even you know, under this sort of extra legal banking blockade by the most powerful, um, most powerful state on earth. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that was one of the first things. And then we sort of see the regulatory attacks start popping up. Uh, so, you know, that's what I would call uh, this sort of Swedish preliminary investigation that, you know, was opened and closed three or four times. Um, you know, they said, they, you know, oh, Julian, you can leave. You know, Julian said, I'll stay in Sweden. You know, you, you can question me. You know, happy to happy to cooperate uh, with you. I said, oh, no, you no, it's OK. You can leave. And then while he's on the plane, they, re you know, they, they issue the Interpol red notice and things like that. Uh, he gets all his computers taken away from him. 
from his baggage and, and, and all these sort of things. Nils Melser, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, he is a Swedish speaker and he thoroughly went through this case and, it, you know, the amount of irregularities uh, in, this, in this Swedish investigation led him to uh, find that the system, you know, the system had been totally abused in order to keep Julian confined in, in Britain. Um, so, you know, even when Julian was even in the embassy, he said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to come to Sweden uh, if you can guarantee that I won't be extradited to the USA, which those guarantees are sort of are given regularly. And he said, and he also said, well, if you want to question me, come to the embassy and question me here. And, you know, the, which Sweden refused to do. So there's all these sort of irregularities that would have allowed the case to proceed uh, or, or, you know, charges to be laid because uh, it would, charges were never laid. It was always a preliminary investigation. Mm -hmm. uh, but those actions were never taken. And there's even emails um, leaked from the, or not, they weren't leaked actually, they were under freedom of information, FOI requests put by an Italian journalist that have the Crown Prosecuting Service in the UK, emailing the, the Swedes wanted to drop it. They, they were like, "This is a you know, this is a disaster for us. This is really bad PR. There's so many irregularities. Uh, you know, our just our prosecutors are looking, starting to look corrupt." And the um, Crown Prosecuting Service in the UK responded saying, "Don't get cold feet. You know, this don't don't get cold feet now. Wow. You have to keep this open, keep this going." because it's keeping Julian in this uh, in the Ecuadorian embassy, keeping him in one spot where he can be surveilled, uh, where his freedom is um, taken away. Um, so, yeah, there's so many irregularities in that case. You just have to look at Niels Melser. He basically has called it psychological torture, you know, this sort of um, uh, these attacks on Julian's character uh, mm -hmm. from this case, from that investigation. Yeah, and so the investigation, it never went to trial. And then Swedish prosecutors eventually did drop the investigation, saying that their evidence had weakened over time. But meanwhile, Assange broke bail. He took refuge in the embassy of Ecuador in London, and he was granted asylum by Ecuador on the grounds of political persecution, because it was very clear that this was a very you know strange case. They wouldn't do anything to actually uh, further the case. They just, as you said, wanted to keep him in a place where he could be surveilled and so he was like oh this is not looking good the writing's on the wall here so what happened after he took refuge in the ecuador uh, embassy in london yeah so i think for a, uh, you know for quite a quite a time there uh, you know that was his refuge he was able to have visitors he was able to operate wikileaks uh from from there you know wikileaks continued to do releases um you know julian said you know that life in the ecuadorian embassy was uh, you know, it was a intellectually rich life, but, um, you know, in terms of how we, you know, he, he, he couldn't go out and, you know, see a tree or, or, or you yeah. know, walk in the park or have sunshine or anything like that. But um, in terms of an intellectual life, it was quite good. But then after they published Vault 7, which was the, there was a big leak of the CIA hacking tools, and mm -hmm. zero-day hacks that the CIA were using as their sort of spy tools. It wasn't a data dump or anything like that. They selectively published parts of these hacking tools. And at that point, there was a speech in 2017 by Mike Pompeo, who was then director of the CIA. He went on to be Secretary of State. And he classified WikiLeaks as a non-state 
hostile intelligence service. And a lot of people were scratching their heads at the time, thinking, well, what does that mean? This is very strange. Why is he singling out WikiLeaks? This was his first speech as CIA director. Wow. And it was a classification given that would allow the CIA to undertake um, actions against WikiLeaks similar to the actions that they undertake against, say, Iranian intelligence or uh, Chinese intelligence services. So it basically gives the CIA carte blanche to use uh, their powers to go after, you know, what is essentially a publisher. And that's when uh, Julian's refuge in uh, in the Ecuadorian embassy uh, started to turn into basically a prison, you know, more of a prison for him. We saw surveillance begin to ramp up. I remember going and visiting him in 2017 and his visitors list had been curtailed. Uh, it was only allowed family uh, and his lawyers uh, to visit him. Uh, he was no longer allowed friends to come and see him. Um, they'd installed very high definition cameras. Um, he had to use a uh, like a jammer when we spoke, like like a sort of um, a microphone jammer mm-hmm. that that um, that would jam the um, uh, the recording devices that were in the embassy. And, and this just uh, continued to get ramp, ramped up and ramped up. They took away his shaving kit. They, they sort of, uh, people would come in, they would open their phones, they would take photos of the IMEI numbers and things like that. And all this information, uh, all this surveillance was being sent back to the CIA in the USA. There was an investigation done by some Yahoo News reporters that came out in September that had over 30 sources from within the intelligence community um, current people from within the CIA, ex-CIA people who confirmed all this. You know, we knew about it because there was um, some leakers from the, from the security company uh, who were contracted by Ecuador. Uh, they leaked uh, all this information about this spying to a Spanish judge. But we had confirmation of that in September from this Yahoo News report. It even went further to say, well, there are actually plots within the CIA to assassinate Julian, to murder him inside the embassy. And there were also plots to render him, you know, how can we kidnap him from inside the embassy? The report went on to say, oh, well, so the CIA came up with this plot to render him. And that went all the way to the White House as well, this report says. Uh, uh, But the DOJ stopped them, the US DOJ stopped them and said, well, you know, you can render him, but we we don't have any, we haven't got the charges ready. So what are you going to do with him once we get him here? So... Uh, in that sense, it's very clear to see that these current set of charges against Julian, uh, uh, you know, been put in place because because the CIA really just wanted to get their hands on him. They wanted to kidnap him, and now they've they've done that sort of judicially instead of um, instead of rendering illegally. So it's like a judicial kidnapping, essentially, yeah. of what, what's happened to Julian. Yeah, and it was interesting. I remember reading reports at the time talking about some of the methods that they had used and the CIA had used to infiltrate the Ecuadorian embassy and get surveillance in there. Like they, you know, sometimes they just... um, co-opt the cleaning company and then have them do it so it's not like it's not necessarily cia agents 
um, breaking in. It's like they use all of these people in the vicinity yes. and they leverage them or they threaten them or they, you know, blackmail them in order to get these surveillance devices in. But I think the biggest, like the most shocking news of all was the murder plot revelations. Mm -hmm. That that was shocking. This is a journalist who's publishing documents to hold the government accountable. The government then tries to assassinate him. And where's the uproar about this? This is, I mean... I mean, what kind of a country are we living in? No, exactly. You're exactly right. And then you look, you say, well, how does this affect journalists around the world? How does this right. affect publishers around the world? So, uh, you know, if you have if you have uh, the US, which likes to, you know, say they uh, the sort of uh, pushes of press freedom around the world, ha. but. But, the um, bastions really... of freedom is that is the United States, the the people holding you know, <laughs> the Nobel Prize uh, nominated journalist Julian Assange. I, I mean, it's it's laughable. It's absolutely laughable that they can um, hold themselves up as a beacon of truth to be followed and emulated around the world. What they've done is disgusting, and they really have just persecuted journalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they give license to you know. They give license to states like Saudi Arabia. They actually murdered a journalist inside an embassy, right? Well, Saudi Arabia can turn around and say to the US, well, you know, you're doing the same thing, but in slow motion to Julian Assange. That's what we sort of see it as, a murder in slow motion. The leader of Azerbaijan, he was brought up with his track record on journalism, and, and he's bringing up, you know, what about Julian Assange? How do you uh, assess what happened to Mr. Assange? Is it a reflection of free media in your country? We're not here to discuss no, my let's country. Discuss. No, let's discuss. No, President In order Ali to accuse me, saying that Armenians will not have free uh, media here, let's talk about Assange. How many years, sorry, how many years he spent in Ecuadorian embassy? And for what? And where is he now? For journalistic activity. You kept that person hostage, actually killing him morally and physically. You did it, not us, and now he's in prison. So you have no moral right to talk about free media when you do these things. And even the Chinese Foreign Ministry now, they're bringing it up all the time. As soon as the State Department says anything about press freedom or criticizes them on their human rights record, they bring up Julian and say, well, you've, you've got a publisher and a journalist locked in prison yeah. um, for no reason at all, other than publishing truthful information. Uh, you know, who are you to criticize us? So I think it's given license and an affected journalism around the world, not just... Um, not just in the US. Let's talk about what happened when his asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy came to a halt. So he lived at the embassy for seven years. It became increasingly hostile. But then I think a big turning point was when the regime changed. And then President Lenin Moreno came into power. They changed up their foreign policy and the asylum was revoked. And what is interesting at the time was there just happened to be a $4 billion IMF loan that Ecuador was just given. I'm sure that had nothing to do with Ecuador's decision to suddenly release Assange from asylum, that they were basically given $4 billion for this. I mean, it's just so many things that happened at that time. And the governments who are responsible for this can, you know, do, do all of this with a straight face as if there's nothing amiss. I mean, it's crazy to me. Yeah, well, I think it's even worse than that. They do it. With, they're actually proud of what what they what they've done. You know, I think there was um, a, a fellow in the British Foreign Ministry uh, named Alan Duncan who's recently pu published his memoir, and he was one of the main players in this what 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 was called Operation Pelican, 
which was um, a British operation to get Julian out of the out of the embassy. And so, you know, Alan Duncan published all, all about this in his memoir that he went back and forth to Ecuador, had um, Ecuadorian government ministers come and visit him, how they celebrated after Julian was taken from the embassy. Um, he, he even took, uh, you know, when, when Julian was taken from the embassy, he took a plate from the um, Buckingham Palace gift shop and gifted it to Lenin Moreno. Like that, that's a, a sort of a congratulatory gift on, on their achievement of, um, you know, kidnapping a publisher and journalist. So this hubris around this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's disgusting, but, um, you know, this is the sort of how the establishment wield their power and, and, you know, what Julian was fighting against, you know, these, um, these people, these people who, you know, create injustice all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so let's then skip to, we got, we're in April 2019, Assange was dragged from the embassy and he was dragged from the embassy because he was found guilty. Like, keep in mind, he no longer has any charges against him. The, uh, Sweden has dropped the charges. He's hiding in Ecuador because he's terrified of the US government. He gets dragged from the embassy and found guilty of skipping bail seven years earlier for charges that he is not even charged with. Um, and so it was a minor offence and then he was given the maximum possible sentence uh, so that they could hold him behind bars, which was 50 weeks. The US unveils an indictment against him that would then keep him in prison. So what we're seeing here is just a history of Assange, them not being able to pin anything on him. All he has been guilty of is journalism. So they're just finding ways to use up time and you know push the kick the can down the road so they can just keep him behind bars and they're using all of these legal loopholes in order to do this and it's disgusting because this is a man who's done nothing wrong and they've has not been found guilty of anything um and he's been kept behind bars so he has this indictment against him walk me through um what happens next he's uh taken drag from the embassy he now has this u.s extradition charge yeah, so he was taken from the embassy. The extradition charges actually came down almost immediately. He served the maximum sentence for breach of bail, even though he'd been basically detained in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years. Yeah. He was then given the maximum sentence for breach of bail and since then has been held as what they call a remand prisoner. Uh, so that's somebody who's held without a sentence, basically. So he's been held in what's been called Britain's Guantanamo, the hardest prison in Britain, as an innocent man for coming up on two two years, I think it will be in April. And so that's um, Belmarsh Prison. It's this maximum security facility, as you said. It's notorious yep. for just having the most abhorrent conditions there. Um, and Assange, a completely nonviolent person, is being held there. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it's two years he's he's been there. Yeah, and that's at the that's solely at the behest of the US DOJ. So the US DOJ now that now it's the Biden. Uh, the Biden DOJ, Biden right. administration DOJ, who's uh, pursuing this. The DOJ under the Obama administration, they had considered putting an indictment against Assange as well. They actually chose not to because they said that this would be a terrible threat for freedom because there's nowhere to distinguish what Assange did and what the New York Times did when they published the Pentagon Papers or what the Guardian did when they published the Snowden revelations. And so the DOJ under Obama effectively said we can't can't persecute Assange because we'd effectively be persecuting 
journalism. This would be terrible for freedom of the press. And then the Trump administration turned around and said, nah, we'll do it. We, we don't mind. Let's dig into those charges. If we were to talk about like, oh, Assange, why is he behind bars? A lot of people say, oh, because he helped Chelsea Manning hack some computers to get documents. Again, this is a complete misrepresentation of what happened. And I think it has something to do with the DOJ, their press release that they issued about the indictment, where they actually used the term hacking in the headline, even though in the actual indictment, there are zero hacking charges. So walk me through some of the charges that he was actually given. The first charge that came down was the Computer uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act charge, which is that he assisted Manning. It's not even to hack anything. The allegation is that he assisted Manning to hide her identity so that she could access the computers without being identified as, as Chelsea Manning. Manning already had access to everything, and she'd already leaked a lot of it to WikiLeaks. So even the allegation is, is a sort of what it's like, what journalists do. They help their sources hide their identity. They help their sources, um, you know, they're always withholding their sources' identity uh, all the time. So that charge in itself is actually making what investigative journalists do um, illegal. Uh, and that charge was so weak that there was a superseding indictment issued where they bolstered that charge. You know, they tried to frame Julian Moore as a hacker. When normal people think about hackers, they, they think about somebody who's going to steal my credit card number or something like that. So they're like, OK, well, let's let's label him a hacker and not a journalist. The situation was, at my understanding, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that Manning had delivered the documents, but it would have been traced to her because she had used her user account. So Assange was trying to find a way to uh, access the computers, uh, access a database of other people's logins so that they could use some general login uh, credentials so that it wouldn't be traced back to her. It had nothing to do with obtaining documents. It was all about trying to find a way to obscure her identity. I think it's even worse than that because... um... You know, there's there's a sort there's a chat log, and they've identified Chelsea Manning in the chat log, but they don't know who the other person is in the chat log, and the password hash uh, that uh, that that um, you know Manning asked for help to crack, they don't. There's no actual proof of what it is. You know what the password hash is for, so um, you know the assumption is that it's for, uh, you know the allegation is that it's for obscuring her identity, but. Uh, in actual fact, that you know, it could be for anything. So, wow. uh, yeah. So these, they, that's how weak these charges are. And they tried to bolster them with the FBI found a witness. This guy Sigator Tordeson, who was an Icelandic man who worked with WikiLeaks back in 2010, who actually got fired from WikiLeaks because they found out that he was, um, you know, taking donations and keeping them for himself. Wow. Uh, he's also a convicted pedophile and also convicted of fraud in other areas. But the FBI used him as their star witness to bolster this computer fraud charges by statements of, of tortisons that, uh, you know, said that, oh, Julian asked me to, uh, you know, hack this or hack that uh, in, in Iceland. And then since then, Tordeson has recanted those statements and said, well, I lied to the FBI. And so there's portions of the indictment that are now in dispute. This star witness who they've used to bolster this hacking charge has recanted their statement. They're so weak that they've used these sort of compromised witnesses, offered them immunity, offered them money. Even then, it's still fallen apart uh, uh, on the USTOJ. The abuse of process is is just, uh, you know, it's unbelievable. I call it another leak, basically. The, 
the persecution of Julian is is like another it's like another leak. As we go along, we see you know corruption at every level, whether it's in the Hi. Swedish prosecuting service, uh, whether it's in the Crown prosecuting service in the UK, um, you know uh, whether it's in the judiciary in the UK or the US DOJ or the FBI or even the CIA. Like all these pa- all these places have been touched, uh, you know, by this persecution and been revealed to sort of um, you know been tools of the. Of the of the state when it comes to going after journalists and publishers, so oh. I think just this whole persecution of Julian is 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 like another revelation, basically. Julian has been charged under the Espionage Act. What is the Espionage Act exactly, and why does this pertain to Julian at all? The 1917 Espionage Act, which is a very old arcane U.S. law that was brought in just before World War One to stifle dissent around U.S. involvement in World War One and has more recently been used against whistleblowers like Daniel Ellsberg, who was a whistleblower uh, with the Pentagon Papers during the Vietnam War, wasn't used again for many, many years. And then under the Obama administration, it began to be used more and more uh, frequently, always against leakers. So people like Daniel Hale, Chelsea Manning, John Kiriakou, who's a CIA whistleblower, and Edward Snowden. But this is the first time it's ever been uh, applied to a publisher. The wording in the act is very broad so that it can be applied basically to whether it's a leaker or someone who's seditious to the government or a publisher. It can be sort of twisted and used in a way that the DOJ can basically apply it to anybody who does what the US government doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's how the law has been applied. Basically, the Espionage Act made it a crime to convey information with the intent to interfere with the operation or success of the armed forces of the United States or to promote its enemy's success. And this was punishable by death or imprisonment for not more than 30 years or both. And to convey false reports or false statements with the intent to interfere with the operational success of the military or naval force of the United States. Why does Assange even have allegiance to the United States? What... Like, is he, is he a citizen of the United States as well? Like, how, why would the U.S. even have jurisdiction over him? Yeah, that, that's one of, another one of the irregularities in the case. You know, Julian's an Australian citizen. Uh, you know, he, he was not in, in the U.S. at the time of the alleged crimes. Um, so it's, uh, I think a lot of people in the U.S. even scratch their head about this. Like, he doesn't have allegiance to the U.S. He hasn't signed... You know, when people go and work for the government, they sign these confidentiality things like, you know, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, mm-hmm. um, you know, they all agreed to these, um, you know, keep things confidential. Uh, Julian hasn't done any of that. He hasn't agreed to any of these things. Um, he's not a U.S. citizen. Uh, you know, so I think that's one of the irregularities that a lot of people question is why, why is uh, an Australian citizen who uh, published, uh, published newsworthy information in the U.K., uh, charged with espionage and I think you know the answer is they want to take the espionage act and use it uh, against um, publishers against journalists to punch this hole in the first amendment and Julian is someone if if, if there wasn't a Julian Assange they would have to make one up because uh, the national security state just doesn't want its secrets uh, exposed and they're using the espionage act to clamp down on you know whistleblowers at first and now publishers. The New York Times executive editor, Washington Post executive editor, have all come out saying that this prosecution is a threat to journalism. And why are they saying that? Because 
these executive editors have stories that come across their desks and they can see, well, they're getting legal advice. Well, you know, under this Espionage Act indictment, uh, if, if, if we publish this story, we, we might be able to be indicted as well. Uh, so I think that's very clear that, that the chilling effect that this prosecution is having is already being felt uh, within the legacy media organisations. But that has a flow-on effect as well. Where can a whistleblower go now? Where, yeah. you know, if they have, if they have defence uh, material or security state material, um, can they go to one of these legacy media outlets and rely on them to publish it? I, I don't think they can. You know, so I think you know, if, if you're a whistleblower, why would you uh, risk all this? Why would you take this great risk that you would go to prison under the Espionage Act, that you would do all this stuff, and the injustices that you're trying to expose uh, will never see the light of day? So this this sort of double. Uh, double chilling effect on whistleblowing and publishing through this Espionage Act prosecution. And there's also the question of what constitutes a sovereign nation these days when the United States government seems to dictate the terms for the entire globe and for citizens of other countries and what they're allowed to publish as citizens of other countries in you know journals in other countries. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense that the US should get to control the entire globe like this. Yeah, the extraterritorial nature you know what's to stop the what's to stop the us doj from you know reaching into you know germany or france and and trying to extradite people like that or what's to stop other governments like uh, you know the government the orban government in hungary yeah. you know saying saying oh there's an austrian journalist who published things we didn't like we're going to do uh, you know we're going to charge him and and extradite him or uh, Erdogan's China. government Go. in Turkey. Yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. It's it's they're setting this example. Um, you know, this is what can be done. This is what's possible. Uh, you know, you can apply your laws in other states and, and you can get away with it. Journalists like Glenn Greenwald, people like Snowden have said that this case against Assange, it really does just criminalise journalism. And if we read through some of the specific allegations, the actual language used, it's, I mean, it's nothing other than persecuting journalism. It's so clear. So it says it was part of the conspiracy that Assange and Manning used a special folder on a cloud drop box of WikiLeaks to transmit classified records. It's like, oh, okay, so a journalist received files from a source on the internet. Like, that's essentially what they're saying. It was part of the conspiracy that Assange managed, uh, and Manning used the Jabba online chat service to collaborate. It's like, okay, so a journalist talked to their source via encrypted chat. Like, it's what journalists do. It was part of the conspiracy that Assange and Manning took measures to conceal Manning as the source of the disclosure, including by removing usernames and deleting chat logs. That yes, that again, it's just, just what journalists do. Where is the conspiracy? And then they say, you know, one of my favorite parts is Assange actively encouraged Manning to provide more information. So again, I, I don't see a single charge in this indictment that has anything to do with espionage or anything that they could actually pin on Assange. He literally is just doing his job as a journalist. And as Greenwald has said repeatedly, journalism is essential in our society as part of the fourth estate. We need it to hold government accountable. We need it to uncover corruption. And uh, 
And right here, that government is turning around and saying, actually, let's just get rid of that fourth estate because uh, we don't really want any of this accountability coming back on us. So it's really such a travesty of justice. Assange appealed the extradition request and he actually won. The judge came to the conclusion that it would pose serious uh, dangers to Assange if he were to go back to the US. They cited Manning as an example where the US government, where Obama pardoned Manning and then they rearrested her for not testifying against Assange and then she attempted suicide and so this UK judge cited that as a reason why they can't let Assange uh, be extradited to the US because it would be cruel and his, his life would be in danger. First of all do you agree with that assessment? What do you think the dangers are to Assange's mental health um, at this stage? Over the years you know I've seen sort of Julian you know, visiting him in the embassy many times, um, you know, back when he was under house arrest as well, uh, and also in the prison and, you know, watching watching him just being crushed by this persecution, watching the effects of this psychological torture take their toll on him. I mean, he's very strong. He's, um, you know, I think other people, anyone else in this situation, uh, you know, I don't think would have lasted as long as Julian has, but, um, you know, they do take their toll. And so I have no doubt that either he would be led to, to you know, self-harming or something like that, um, or that the government, the U.S. government, wouldn't be able to keep him safe in their prison system. You know, mm. we are talking about extraditing, extraditing somebody to the place that um, had their government organizations, the CIA, uh, yeah. that putting plots together to, to assassinate them. So, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, sending uh, someone to their, basically the people who were planning to murder them. It's not just about Julian's health. It's about these plots that exist in these segments of the intelligence community. They want Julian dead. That's the goal. And that's what we've seen from that investigation by the Yahoo News reporters is that there are people, there are segments of that intelligence community that want Julian dead. And, and that's that's what I'm most fearful of. Uh, him being extradited and then uh, not being able to be kept safe in, in the prison system there. One thing's important to note about the lower court decision, they found that they couldn't extradite Julian because of his mental health and the prison system in the, in the US. What they agreed with the US DOJ on was mm. all the substantive points, all the press freedom points. What they have done by extension is made that uh, you know, confirmed all that you can be extradited if you publish information against the US state. So that's um, very important to know. I'll just add to that. I mean, there's a big difference between the US and the UK in terms of press freedoms as well. It's not written yes. into any uh, Bill of Rights. <laughs> the UK doesn't have anywhere where it says, oh, we've got this First Amendment, which is freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And the UK is notorious for banning all kinds of speech there. So actually, it doesn't surprise me that they would uphold something that poses a serious threat to press freedoms because the UK has no press freedoms. Um, but what is really scary is the US pushing this and the US is meant to have these protected. So what is yeah. protecting these things? I mean, it seems that there's there's nothing. The Bill of Rights is just a figment of our imagination at this stage. Yeah, I think so. And, and if you look back to say, you know, uh, the Guardian's work with, on the Snowden uh, archive with Glenn Greenwald, you know, he worked for Guardi the Guardian at the time. If Julian's extradition um, had happened before that, you question whether the Guardian would have done any of that reporting, no. you know, because they would have had this uh, this extradition precedent hanging over their head, you know, oh, well, you're the publisher of The Guardian, you publish this information. 
and we can indict you under the Espionage Act. So it, that that precedent is now set. There's no sort of walking back walking back of that. Um, you know, the the extraterritorial extra uh, nature of U.S. law now reaches into to the U.K. He initially won his case, and this judge denied the extradition. Then the U.S. came back and fought it. The U.S. then appealed uh, the extradition rejection, um, and they gave what they call assurances, which are you know. Um, not really uh, assurances at all. Um, you know, they they sort of say, well, you know, we will put him where he can receive the um, support he needs for his conditions. We won't put him in the maximum security. Uh, you know, Colorado, uh, Florence, Colorado, which is um, you know one of their harshest prisons where they keep El Chapo. But there's many of those prisons throughout the country. They gave an assurance that they would not keep him under SAMS. Um, but then that insurance has a caveat, which is like, unless he does something that means that we should put him under SAM. So they <laughs> oh can sort gosh. of change it at any time. And the prison system in the US is so complicated that there are many of these classifications. One example is Daniel Hale, who was the drone whistleblower, mm-hmm. uh, who's now being kept in very similar conditions to SAM's, which is called CMU, which is called Communications Management Unit. So all his lawyers' conversations are recorded. All his communications with the outside world are recorded and monitored. He's kept away from other prisoners. So this is a very, very similar situation. So the assurances that have been given by the US um, are really not worth the paper they're printed on. I mean, Amnesty International has said that, that they don't even fit the definition of assurances because they have caveats built into them. And that was the basis that the High Court ordered Julian's extradition. The appeal was a two-day appeal held in October, and they handed down their decision in December where they ordered the extradition of Julian to the USA. So now the ball's back in Assange's court. He is fighting this again. Is this the final chance he has to get this overturned? So Julian has appealed uh, appealed that decision uh, to the Supreme Court. As this moves up, the uh, it gets uh, narrower and narrower what you can appeal on, and mm-hmm. so we're no longer, uh, you know, we're no longer talking about the crimes that Julian revealed. Uh, we're talking about U.S. prison conditions and Julian's well-being, wow. and, and so the focus becomes on that all the time. So the pressure builds on Julian. This is about you, you know. This is about what's going to happen to you rather than um, the criminality and the corruption uh, that he actually exposed. This High Court uh, extradition order is um, holds a lot of weight because one of the judges was actually the Chief Justice, so he's like the big cheese of the British judiciary, that you can't get any higher than him. And he's one of the justices who has ordered the extradition. So any appeal to the Supreme Court needs to be approved by the judges who ordered the extradition at the High Court level. And he is actually the uh, chief magistrate. So um, it makes it very, very difficult to appeal to the Supreme, Supreme, Court, uh, Supreme Court level um, that, you know, that uh, uh, an extradition appeal will be, gar- will be given uh, to the Supreme Court uh, for Julian. So we're expecting the decision now on that in the next, uh, in the next well, should be any moment, I think. We were expecting it wow. last week, but it could be this week. The fact that this chief magistrate's involved uh, means that um, you know, it's looking more and more imminent that he will be, you know, extradited and could be extradited, you know, as early as, um, you know, by the middle of this year. A lot of people are ignoring it in the US, and I don't think they can ignore it any longer. You know, it, you know, this the extradition has been ordered. Uh, we can't really rely on the British courts to stop this. You know, the chief magistrate has ordered the extradition. So it's really up to 
the decision makers in the US now to uh, you know, have a good hard look at this indictment and say, well, this is actually criminalizing journalism. Um, you know, as you said, the you look at the indictment, it doesn't really hold water at all. Yeah. Uh, it's basically just talking about journalism that people do every day. And that's why there's 25 press freedom organizations in the US, uh, including the ACLU, Freedom of the Press Foundation, Committee to Protect Journalists, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, have written to Merrick Garland, the US Attorney General, outlining the threats to press freedom that this indictment is making and, uh, and uh, asking him to drop it. So I think that's, that's where the sort of the, the, the front is now is, is uh, you know, convincing the US DOJ that they need to drop this, um, you know, that it's a sort of an attack on the First Amendment and an attack on, on press freedom. And we've, we've been getting some more and more support in the US. Just in December, we had Congressman Ro Khanna speak out, Ilhan Omar, she made a tweet. So there is building constituency in the US uh, within Congress, um, you know, in the progressive side, uh, that, that this case is a threat to press freedom and a threat, a threat to the First Amendment and should, be, and should be dropped in the US. I think we've sort of believed that the legal system is just and, and that we can sort of... Um, you know, once it's in the legal system, oh, we can leave it to them. The judges will, you know, make the right decision and, and Julian will get his day in court and justice will be served. And yeah, right. um, But it's this sort of veil. It's like a little a veil of legality that's placed over this um, persecution to convince um, people that, uh, that Julian will get his justice. But really, um, you know, the injustice flows you know, even through the judiciary and through the court system, without a political solution, without sort of a political wave, uh, there, this, there will be no justice for Julian in this case. Yeah. And there are a couple of dangers to press freedom going on right now, because it's not like if they drop the uh, indictment, then suddenly press freedom is saved. Because what we have is a situation where a journalist publishes documents exposing corruption in the government, and is then imprisoned for the next decade, even without them succeeding with this indictment and then charging him and throwing him behind bars afterwards, they still managed to persecute a journalist for a decade of their life for exposing government corruption. And that's terrifying. And a high profile person as well. Imagine all of the people out there that we don't hear about uh, who are being persecuted, uh, threatened, blackmailed, who disappear uh, because they're exposing corruption as well, or they're threatening to expose corruption. Like it's a really, it's a scary situation. Yeah, it is. And it's not just journalists who are being pursued. It's like, I think the DOJ has sort of become this tool uh, that has been used against all sorts of, you know, all sorts of people, even technologists. There's a fellow in the UK, Mike Lynch. He's a billionaire technologist there who sold a company to Hewlett Packard, who were then no longer happy with the deal. And so now the US DOJ has requested extradition of Mike Lynch from the UK on fraud charges. So it's the use of the DOJ and American law to sort of trap people and pressure them and, you know, whether it's business interests, whether it's a technological interest or, or whether it's a, you know, interest against transparency, um, you know, it's this, uh, this sort of extraterritorial reach that, that the US DOJ now has after, after these extradition treaties that were put in after 9-11, you know, to, to combat terrorism. They're sort of exploiting these, um, these extradition treaties um, for other purposes. 
And it's not just the extradition treaties that they're exploiting. It's this tool of oppression that we've set up, this surveillance state whereby all of our communications are collected and stored in perpetuity in NSA databases. And we're just, we just have these permanent records collected and built about us so that if the government ever does want to get us for something, all they have to do is comb back through the record of everything we've ever done on the internet and they could get people for anything, which is what we're mm. seeing at the moment. It, you know, People being persecuted, not for what the government actually wants to persecute them for, but they'll find some other thing that you know just happens to be not above board or they didn't cross the right T or dot the right I. And so it's really scary when people, like at the moment you have people say, well, privacy, why should I even bother about it? Why should I care? I'm not important. It's like, well, you know, if, if you ever do something that is important, if you ever actually want to hold people accountable or fight for what's right, you may be in trouble because there are people who may not want you to do that and they have everything at their fingertips to stop you from doing that. So it is a scary uh, situation at the moment. Um, but, but right now, I mean, it was rumoured that Trump almost pardoned Assange. It got right up to the 11th hour and... Um, and there were rumours like Snowden was on the list, Ross Ulbricht was on the list, Sanchez was on the list, and then he didn't go through with it because it was pressured by the DOJ. And that was sort of this bastion of hope that a lot of people held out. Glenn Greenwald had some really interesting analysis about why Trump didn't pardon Julian and Snowden. And he was saying that Trump was approached by Republicans saying that the final impeachment is going to go bad for you if you do this. Yeah. And so... Absolutely. Um, I guess Julian and Snowden turned into political bargaining chips in that yeah. sense, um, you know, that Trump was able to trade uh, so that his impeachment um, would, wouldn't proceed. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's so shameful. What do you think the chances are of the Biden administration turning around and just dropping the extradition request at this stage? Look, I don't think they're going to do it without, uh, without concerted political pressure. Uh, I think there has to be a political cost for them to continue with the prosecution. Um, I don't think they're just going to turn around and drop it. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's career people within the uh, National Security DOJ who have been pushing this prosecution for a long time. So um, to turn it back at this point for them is going to be, um, you know, a lot of egg on their face. So there needs to be concerted political pressure for, for Biden to drop this. And, you know, that's sort of, developing with those 25 press freedom organizations human rights organizations you know congress people speaking out um but you know this is a sort of base that we are trying to build on and and, and that's what um you know my father and i were over in the u.s in june we did a 15 city tour trying to build up build up sort of grassroots support uh for, for this to be dropped um so i think yeah we've got a sort of base that that has been built upon but they it's not. It's not going to be just. I don't think they're just going to just going to turn around and drop it. There needs to be a political cost uh, associated with pursuing it, and uh, I think that's sort of developing and being built on. Um, you know, we spoke at the Bitcoin conference in May as well, sort of reaching out to um, you know the Bitcoin community for their support, both politically and financially. And yeah, I think we're just sort of you know building up this, you know, building up a constituency for Julian so that. Um, so that there's more pressure mounted on, on the Biden administration um, to drop this. What's the best call to action for people to do? Should they be reaching out to representatives? Is there a website they can visit that allows them to easily reach out to representatives? Yeah, so there's a website for US-based 
activism, assangedefense.org. That's got all the things that you need to know, like who to contact in the DOJ, who which representatives to contact. I always encourage people to sort of, you know, exercise their democratic rights by contacting, you know, their local representative, the person who needs their vote um, mm-hmm. to get into to get into um, Congress. So I'm, I'm always uh, encouraging people to do that. Is there anything that the Australian government could do in this situation? I mean, Assange is an Australian citizen, right? Could they ask for extradition back to Australia? Would that possibly supersede the US extradition request? There's a lot of support for Julian in Australia. A couple of weeks ago, the Deputy Prime Minister did an opinion piece calling for Julian to be brought back for Australia, for the extradition to be stopped. I think all it would take is the Australian Prime Minister just to pick up the phone. Australia has a lot of clout because we're very, Australia is very strategically important uh, to the US, particularly with the rising China. There's this new alliance which was an, announced, the AUKUS Alliance, Australia, UK and US. The Australian Prime Minister could just ring Joe Biden and say, look, we're your AUKUS ally here. We want Julian to be brought back to Australia and for the extradition and for the charges to be dropped. I think that's entirely possible and within within the means of our Prime Minister. So the pressure's on in Australia too. It's not yeah. just US people reaching out to their representatives. The Australian people need to be reaching out as well and putting yeah. the pressure on for this to happen. No, and it's a global movement. I mean, there's a parliamentary group in, in Australia that has 28 members from the Australian Parliament in it, and it adds a member every month. It was 26 members a couple of months ago, and now it's 28. You've got the French Parliament has a group of 49 parliamentarians who called on the French government to give Julian asylum. The Greek Parliament, I think it's 100, which is a third of the uh, actual third of the parliament. The UK has a group, 26 members. Germany has a cross-party group that includes government ministers, a Mexican president calling for Assange not to be extradited. There's a worldwide movement all around the world of people who see uh, this case for what it is. You know, it's a criminalization of, of telling the truth, a criminalization of journalism, and they want it to be stopped. And, and, and I think, you know, it's such a great thing to be involved in. You know, it's such a, um, you know, huge movement and, and, you know, the pressure is really building um, on the Biden administration uh, to drop it. So there, there are a lot of different um, uh, ways that people can sort of contribute to this campaign. There's a, DAO, a free Assange DAO, which has been uh, being formed. So people in the crypto community can get in, involved in that way. It's very similar to the free, uh, free Ross DAO. Mm-hmm. So uh, the free Ross DAO was formed around a, an NFT auction. Um, but then, uh, you know, sort of led on from there. And now they're, you know, doing other actions to sort of free Ross, you know, putting forward proposals and things within the DAO. So I think, I think that's, how, that's how I think the DAO sees it, um, sees it developing. Julian is collaborating with an NFT artist called Puck. They probably won't like me calling them an artist, but somebody who works in the NFT space, they have a very sort of same interest, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in the freedom of expression and freedom of communication and free internet. So I think there will be a very interesting NFT piece, which will probably be, uh, you know, early Feb or end of Jan that will come out, collaboration with Puck and Julian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the DAO will bid on uh, will bid on that, I, I imagine, whether they sort of, do the same thing as a, a free Ross down and fractionalize that the NFT purchase or, or, or something like that sort of, uh, we'll see how that all sort of plays out. The free Assange DAO, you know, what would be great to see is um, them putting forward proposals, you know, this is how 
you know, we are, what actions we are going to take, you know, that are there, the people involved, I mean, they're amazing. They're all, you know, some old school cypherpunks, you know, technologists, all these amazing people that have come together in, in this DAO that's forming, um, who are all super intelligent, um, you know, all very savvy, uh, you know, and it, it's just, it's really great to have all those people behind you, you know, now that, that um, mm -hmm. you know, that they're independently working and thinking of ideas of like, how can we, how can we contribute? How can we contribute to, to freeing Julian? So yeah, getting in on that DAO, I think would be a pretty uh, exciting way for people to contribute um, to Julian's freedom uh, at the moment, particularly from the crypto community. And Assange was one of the original cypherpunks who is, you know, using, yes. using technology as a way to get more freedom. And uh, I, I think that I think this is a great idea. I, I hope that you get a lot of support for the DAO and for the NFT collection just to raise some funds to get some resources behind you to continue the fight because there's a lot on the line for this. It's not just about Julian. And it's, I mean, it's really important that we protect Julian because he's done a lot for us. WikiLeaks has really been this bastion of truth providing us these documents uh, firsthand that show us what the government's actually doing. It's actually holding people accountable, and that's so important. But further than that, this is a precedent-setting case. This is going to affect all journalism in the United States and across the world as well, because there are all these ripple effects. Whatever happens in the United States, you know, carries through the rest of the world. So we don't want to see um, a global society where journalism is persecuted, where holding, speaking truth to power is per persecuted. And so I, it's so important that we fight this case. So best of luck to you. And I will put all the links in the description so that people can visit those websites. But I wish you all the best. And thanks so much for chatting with me. Uh, thank you so much for having me on.